Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Beyond the U.S. government shutdown, controversial U.S. border policies continue to make the news. The U.S. just fired tear gas into Mexico near Tijuana to deter asylum seekers from Central America. On Christmas Eve, a second Guatemalan child died while in U.S. detention in New Mexico. And altogether, there are more than 14,000 minors in U.S. custody in a variety of places. The largest detention center is in Tornillo, Texas, near El Paso. And Joshua Rubin has spent the last several months monitoring the Tornillo facility from an RV outside the front gates. The activist from Brooklyn started a Facebook page, Witness Tornillo, to document what's been happening there. And Joshua organized a Christmas caroling event in Tornillo that continued through January 1st. It attracted local politicians, including Beto O'Rourke, who said he'd been told that the facility had stopped admitting new minors. And I spoke with Joshua before in November. Good to hear from you again, Joshua. Nice to be here. Um, the facility is always was supposed to be a temporary facility, the Tornillo facility that you've been monitoring. And over the break, there was a New York Times article that said it was definitely closing. Beto O'Rourke says it's closing. Um, how does it look to you? Because people have been said it's closing before, but it doesn't look – sometimes it looks like it's expanding to you. Well, um, you know, of course, we're, we're always suspicious because of that, uh, that history that you're talking about, uh, the – uh, the promise that it would be temporary. Um, but right now, um, there are some signs of uh, what the folks inside here would call uh, demobilization. Um, there are, we do see kids coming out. We get reports from the airport of, uh, of kids boarding planes and uh, they're boarding planes without guards, which uh, is a good sign. Um, I also have seen some infrastructure coming down here. I've seen uh, one of the large tents. Uh, that went up during the last three months, uh, come down and, and be transported out in pieces. Yesterday I saw 11 trailers, uh, bathroom trailers, uh, rolling out. And just a couple of minutes ago I saw uh, several mobile office units being taken out on flatbeds. Hmm. Now the um, the, the part so about the children, the part about the children um, flying without um, guards, um, what, what does that mean to you? I don't think most people know what would be a better what these people are going to, what these young people are going to? Well, well, where these kids were headed when they came across the border was to, uh, to family members here, for the most part. They all came with a phone number or, or some, some kind of idea about where they're going and who they were going to uh, go and, uh, and be with. Um, what happened to these kids is that they were waylaid and they were... Uh, they were put in this camp first, uh, you know, with the rationalization that uh, that they were dangerous because, you know, everybody knows that young teenagers are dangerous. And then um, and then they turned them into uh, potential victims. And they said, we have to protect them. We have to protect them from from their families who obviously have bad intentions. These are these are racist assumptions, both of them. Um, where they're going, if, if they're going to the right place, they're going to their families now. And that's when I see them on the airplanes without guards, I think that that may, in fact, be where they're going. If I saw large numbers of kids leaving here under guard at the airport, um, I would worry that they were being transferred to another facility. So in essence, they're going to family members who are sponsors. The government recognizes them as sponsors and only them. They don't get to go to um, uh, other places. It would be church facilities or other um, facilities where people would take them in. 
they're supposed to be going to sponsors. That, that is uh, that is the intention. And uh, I'm, I'm watching right now as a couple of CFS vans, that's Baptist Child and Family Service vans, are are rolling out of the place. And uh, it's my hope um, that they're going to head right up to uh, Interstate 10 and go over to the airport and get on a plane and uh, and finally join their families after potentially months in this place. What's it like there in Tornillo? I think most people don't have an idea of what a detention facility for minors would look like. In, and I, it sounds like it's in, you know, a, the middle of the desert, essentially. Well, yeah, it is the middle of the Tuolan Desert. Uh, we're, we're backed up in this camp. We're backed right up to the, uh, to the Rio Grande and the border. This is also a port of entry. Um, it's, it, it is desert area, although this, the immediate area is irrigated, so there's some green around. They grow cotton and alfalfa and things like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's out in the middle of nowhere, as you describe, and, and that's not an accident. This is a place that, uh, um, where they didn't want scrutiny and a place that actually can't bear scrutiny because uh, what goes on here is, uh, is atrocious. Um, they bring children in here and they regiment them in a way that, uh, that, that children can't, can't stand being regimented. They have to walk in single file. They can't go to the bathroom by themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a place um, that they called temporary that turned out to be a, a six or a seven month stay for some of the kids that are in here. Um, it's, it's, it's nowhere that can be found. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people could drive right by this place and not know it's here. It's set up in a way that it's not readily apparent what's going on at all. Uh, tell me a little about your decision to go down there and witness what was happening there for a few months. Well, I had I, gotten involved in, uh, in immigration issues uh, right around the time of the family separation crisis in, uh, in the late spring. And I, um, you know, I went down to McAllen where they were doing family separation and I demonstrated and I, you know, held up a sign and I came down again, uh, a couple of times. And I was, uh, I was in a meeting of, of some, you know, very concerned folks and, and El Paso woman stood up and said, uh, that she was tired of people coming down for a day and they accomplished something. And, uh, that sounded a little too much like me. So I, I thought to myself, well, what would I do if I came down here and spent more than a day? And uh, uh, not having much imagination, I just kind of thought I'll, I'll, I'll go to Tornillo. At the Times has talked about, you know, um, the government going around and picking up teenagers from detention centers around the country and putting them in these tents here. I thought, well, I'll, I'll come here and I'll, I'll sit down and I'll watch what goes in and goes out and, and I'll report on it. And the idea was to to let people know, to, to, to understand what was going on here, to tell people about it, and maybe also to uh, draw attention and then draw people. And your page, your Facebook page, Witness Tornillo, has created a place for activism around this issue, and you were just featured in the Washington Post, The Guardian. You've been a lot of places uh, recently, so you've succeeded in, in drawing attention to this facility and, and talking about what it is. Well, to the extent that I succeeded in doing that, I'm glad. Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I'm happy that yeah, you know, the press has, has started to show an interest, and and we did get some congressional leaders down here, and we even got a piece of uh, legislation uh, introduced in uh, in both houses to uh, shut child prisons down in this country. 
I'm talking with Joshua Rubin, who's been camped outside in an RV outside of the largest detention facility for minors outside of El Paso, Texas, and Tornillo, Texas. And we're talking about the uh, effort to close that uh, facility. And coming up after the break, we're going to talk about winter birds, and we're going to hear about birding in exotic locales like Guatemala and Bhutan. Um, so, Joshua, tell me more about the the results because I know Beto O'Rourke was just there for uh, the caroling events that were happening outside the gate and a lot of people came down to further caroling events. Uh, what was going on? Well, there was a, uh, a caroling event uh, at, on the 23rd and, uh, and uh, yeah, Beto made a, a surprise appearance. Before A week before that, we had some uh, uh, congressional visitors. We had Merkley from Oregon. Chu from California and Maisie Hirono from from Hawaii, um, who all came down to to visit the facility. And but the last time that Beto came out, he said he'd spoken to the director of the place, who said we're, we're not going to take any more kids in here. And thanks to a uh, a, a small change in the policy of vetting these uh, sponsor families, um, that this place was going to empty out pretty quickly. Um, and that's what we're kind of watching for now. Uh, we're watching to see, um, are they going to close down on the schedule that they, they mentioned, which uh, suggested sometime in January? And two, are they going to be sending these kids all to their, their sponsor families? Or are we going to watch a, a kind of a, a, a switch, uh, you know, a sleight of hand here where they take these kids from here and send them to, say, homeland in, uh, in Florida? where they've just added a thousand beds to handle uh, unaccompanied minors. Hmm. You mentioned the, a small change in uh, regulation that could help with um, ending the detention facilities. Uh, what is that? How did that, what is that? How does that work? Well, the, the, the policy until a few weeks ago was that these um, sponsor families uh, had to submit fing- fingerprints of every adult member of the, of the uh, household. And once these fingerprints were, fingerprints were submitted, they were being shared with ICE. Now, this is the kind of thing that strikes uh, fear into immigrant families, um, some of whom are, are undocumented. And so that uh, rule alone um, probably created these, this you know, uh, amazing number of unaccompanied minors sitting in camps in this country, camps and shelters. Um, because families were terrified and they, they were forced to make a decision between somebody they, they love that lives with them right now and somebody they love who they expect to arrive. Um, uh, a terrible choice to have to make. It sort of slowed down the process, you know, just even administratively, not just, not just with the terror of, uh, that they were inflicting on these families. So recently, um, they made a small change, and the small change is that only the principal sponsor is going to be fingerprinted and investigated. And that information shared with ICE. Um, that should speed things up. Uh, we don't know how much, and that's that's what we're watching for. Um, obvi- obviously, the chances of, uh, of of deterring these families from coming forward are reduced by the fact that only one member of the uh, of the household is going to be investigated. Uh, well, that would certainly be a good thing if they could go to households. It sounds like so many of these 14,000 children who are held in facilities around the country are going to um, some 9,800 or in facilities with 100 or, or more kids around. So they're they're really broken up into many different facilities across the country. Um, 
And I noticed that uh, the child from Guatemala that died in uh, New Mexico on over uh, Christmas Eve, uh, that child had come in really close to you, really close to El Paso, and wasn't at your facility, but was shipped over to New Mexico. Um, what what do you? What does the shuffling of these people do? Do you think? Right. Well, this this is a you know a slightly different stream of people. Um, in that these these are these, these are families as opposed to these unaccompanied minors. But here's here's what's going on. Um, when these families come to the country and, and ask for asylum, um, they're held in detention facilities. And because of the, you know, some, some of the regulations and, and, and some of the situation, they, they are kind of shuffled around from one detention to, uh, center to another. They're not supposed to hold people, especially people with children, uh, for more than just a little while. And these facilities, a lot of them are really quite brutal. They're, uh, the temperatures are kept down. And uh, if you insist that these people have to be detained for a period of time before they're finally, and they are, they're finally released to go to their sponsor families to wait for uh, rulings on their asylum application, uh, you, you have to expect that this is going to happen. Uh, you, you, you put kids in a situation where they're going to get sick, and they, you know, they are certainly going to get sick sitting in a crowded cell that's too cold. Um, you're going to have deaths. Um, again, this is a, a completely unnecessary procedure because what happens uh, ultimately is they get to go to sponsors. Um, you'd have to ask the question, why are they being held in these facilities? Why do they have to go through this ordeal? And I'm afraid that the answer is a terrible one, and that is we're teaching them a lesson. We're trying to disincentivize immigration, but it's not going to work. People leaving from Central America are leaving situations that are desperate. They're desperately poor. They're desperately violent. And people who are in a burning house don't look out the window to see where they're going to land. They're going to jump. Um, and it's only too bad they have to land in a place like this. And I have to say that the people that I've spoken to who've come all the way from Central America say the worst part of the whole ordeal happens right when they cross the border when they're sent into these detention cells. Wow. It's worse than the entire, the entire migration. I'm talking with Joshua Rubin, who has spent the last several months monitoring the Tornillo detention facility from an RV outside its gates. Uh, you're going home in a few days. You've been doing this for three months. You got three months from your wife to, to monitor the facility. And it looks like okay. the facility's closing, but there are some people who are going to carry on. And how do you see the the work. Uh, where, what is, where is the work after this? Well, the work after this is to make sure that this place goes down and then the tents come down and the infrastructure is dismantled. We got to make sure that this doesn't go up again. So that's step one. Step two is to make sure that other places, as you, as you said, this is only one place. It's the biggest, but it's only one. So there are people, uh, there are kids waiting all over the country uh, to be released to their sponsor families. We've got to keep that going. But the next step is even when they've got to their sponsor families, we have to we have to face the fact that we have an asylum policy uh, that's brutal and cruel. Only one out of ten of these kids is going to get granted asylum, so they face deportation. So the work is going to be to slow down those hearings. I don't want to hear anything about about making it more efficient and sending more judges down. I'd rather there be no judges here at all because I want I want them to be able to stay with those families until we have a government in place 
that can actually deliver a decent and humanitarian asylum policy. Joshua Rubin has spent the last several months monitoring the Tornillo Detention Facility for minors uh, outside of El Paso, Texas, in an RV outside the front gates. And thanks very much for your work, Joshua Rubin, and um, well, good luck to you in the future. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about birding in exotic locales like Guatemala and Bhutan. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're in the teeth of winter now, and so are the birds who choose choose to stay in these parts for the duration of winter. We're going to talk about winter birds, why they stay, how they stay warm, what there is to eat out there this time of year. With me is Judy Pollack. She's a bird conservation consultant, and Josh Engel, founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding. Good to see you guys. How are you? Great. Good to, be Good to see you. So we're going to take some questions about birds in winter. I imagine there are some unanswered questions in your mind about this topic. And the number to call is 312-923-9239. And you can tell us about fun things that are happening at your feeder. Ask a question about partial migration. We will talk with you about birds at 312-923-9239. And as is our tradition on this segment, we will throw you a bird song and ask you about your bird song knowledge uh, when you call in to 312-923-9239. Um, before we get to winter birds, I've got, I want to, you know, I've noticed that birders sometimes travel a lot during the winter and go to places where where birds are more plentiful. And you guys have gone to some terrific exotic locales. Um, Judy, you're just back from Guatemala. Yes, I uh, really love going to Guatemala. And this time um, I went specifically to see birds. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a narrow country and you get uh, many, many different habitats from the mountains down to the desert. So I just finished doing my list and I saw something like uh 230 different species while Whoa. I was down there. So it's really, <laughs> nice. really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Any of our friends from Chicago up down there now? Oh my gosh, so many. That's a, one of the one of the really fun things is to see the birds that we see up here in the summer or coming through on migration in such different um, circumstances. And one, one bird that really surprised me was uh, the wood thrush, which was just everywhere uh, on the ground. But I mean, interestingly, that's a bird that's been declining up here because it, it needs big, big blocks of wood, woodland habitat. And so it's very um, responsive to fragmentation. 
Um, and uh, down there, they say that it's actually declining down there, too, although, you know, I saw so many of them. And the birding community in Guatemala, you would describe it as what's going on? Yeah. So apparently there uh, there have always been a lot of birders in Costa Rica or, you know, like in recent memory. But apparently throughout Central America, there's a big boom in birding, um, you know, in, in a lot of the Central American countries and definitely in Guatemala. I was I did uh, the Christmas bird countdown there, which was a wonderful experience. Um, I did it in Tikal, you know, which are these wonderful Mayan ruins and then they're loaded with monkeys and all kinds of great birds. Um, And there were 140 people doing that Christmas count, most of them local. So that's like a huge, that's gone from maybe about 10 people 10 years ago. So there's just been an an explosion of birding interest down there. That's fantastic to hear. Um, Josh, you're just back from, and you, with uh, your red birding, red hill birding, you go exotic places sometimes. You you do birding uh, things here in the local area in the United States, but sometimes you go to South Africa or Bhutan, and you 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 were in Bhutan last month. Uh, I imagine this is a whole other birding universe. It it totally is, yeah. So. Um for my company, Red Hill Birding, I organize and lead bird watching tours, birding birding focused tours all over the world. And um, so I was recently in Bhutan, like you mentioned, which is a, a totally amazing place. Um, most people don't know where it is. <laughs> um, so it's a real off the radar sort of place. It's a very small country. Uh, it only has about 700,000 people, but it's sandwiched between India and China, the two most populous countries in the world. Um, but it's nestled in the Himalayas. It's very mountainous and very rugged. Um, And they have a very strong uh, conservation ethic there. Uh, So the country is very heavily forested. It still has a lot of really good forest and uh, consequently has a lot of really interesting birds. So you, when you go, you partner with uh, someone who knows the birding universe of that area, and what what kind of things do you see there? Yeah, so in Bhutan, the the model of tourism is sort of different than everywhere everywhere else in the world, and you're actually required by law to go with uh-huh. um, a local tour agency there. And um, I go with a friend of mine who has a tour agency. He was a real top notch birder there. And, uh, yeah, so he organizes everything and we go across the country and in a place like Bhutan, where you have a a huge elevational range, um, that gets as high as, you know, 6,000 meters in the Himalayas, uh, that 20,000 feet in the, uh, in the Himalayas, um, there's a different birds at different altitudes. So you try to cover an elevational span to see different birds at different altitudes. And um, up high, you have these spectacular pheasants, for example, um, that look unlike any bird that, that you could ever imagine. Um, and then, but you also have birds that have a, a, a little more, that would be a little more familiar to observers here, hawks and eagles and warblers and birds like that too. Well, it sounds fantastic. And I was on your website and you've kind of have a rundown of your trip and it, wow. It's, yeah. I've it's, got a photo gallery. You can see there's pictures even some monkeys. Of, you throw some monkeys. Yeah. In yeah. It's <laughs> a, you know, because Bhutan is so much forest, there's a lot of animals there too. So you get to see monkeys and, and different squirrels. We saw a giant flying squirrel and um, it's a really fun and uh, really exa- interesting and different country to travel in. Well, let's take some phone calls about winter birding. And the number to call once again is 312-923-9239. And we are going to talk with Maureen, who is uh, who's on the phone. Maureen? Hi. Good morning, everybody. Hi. What's your question? Oh, my question is, I'm concerned about the ducks because day before yesterday, they came back. 
and usually they come in the spring and stay for the early summer. They have their babies. But I'm wondering, are they back, and should I worry? Are they back because of the warm weather we've had, and should I worry about them having babies in, because likely winter is going to return? What about all this waterfowl universe? Uh, do, uh, do a lot of them um, leave, or do they, a lot of them stay? Um, there's some that do both. Ducks tend to be very, very hardy and be able to handle our winters without any problems at all. Um, generally, uh, birds know when it's time to nest by the changing day lengths. So the day length oh, changes okay. the same every year. So oh. there's no, no risk of them nesting earlier, really, than, than in oh, any other right. year. But we have a lot of ducks um, that come down here for the winter. So they spend the summer much farther north. And they actually come, uh, spend the winter on Lake Michigan or on our rivers as long as they stay unfrozen. And ducks have an amazing um, physiological adaptation that prevents their their feet from freezing, you know, while they're swimming in really, really cold water. And as long as there's open water around here, uh, there's ducks that are catching fish and crayfish. So birds like common golden eyes, red-breasted mergansers common mergansers. Um, these are all ducks that you would really only see here in winter. So if you go down to uh, almost anywhere on Lake Michigan, Chicago River, um, any open lakes, uh, and you bring a pair of binoculars, you'll see black and white ducks floating out there. And uh, uh, you can see quite a different, quite a variety of them. Um, Judy, you want to weigh in on waterfowl in some uh, way? Yeah. Another one of the adaptations that ducks have is that they've got two uh, layers of feathers so that they have this down layer. That's why when you have a down coat, Jacket. it's deuce, goose down or duck down underneath their outer uh, layers. And they also have a gland that, that produces oil. so that And they spread that oil over their feathers so that they'll shed water. So they're they're pretty... Uh, able to handle the cold. All right, Maureen, it sounds like your ducks are going to be safe. Uh, Maureen, we've got a, we've, we've got a, a bird, a duck-related uh, call for you to hear, and, I, and, and maybe you can figure out what kind of duck this is by the sound it oh. makes. Here it is. Oh, no. Oh, it's going to be great. That's, oh. That was a little, just a little squirt there. But, um, it sounded like Daffy. It sounded like Daffy, didn't it? it you're, you are correct. That was Daffy Duck. No, it was. Really? No, it wasn't. Oh, um, <laughs> can I ask a question now for for playing? Um, and that is, am I delusional, or do I actually have the same family of ducks coming back every year? Yeah, it's and it's very possible. Like, I have a lot um, of duck questions. I have a lot of duck questions. Yeah, so the duck call that he just that that we just played was a common golden eye, and one reason why um, why you can play duck calls is because in the winter is when they tend to pair up. So, um, even though the ducks are really just here for the winter, we get to hear them doing their mating calls as they're pairing up before they return back north to breed. But the ducks that you have breeding are probably mallards. They're the ones with the bright, shiny, iridescent green heads and yellow bills and uh, sort of gray bodies. And uh, it could be the same ducks every year, but it could be one of the same ducks and a different mate because ducks are not, they don't always have the same uh, mating pair every year. Why are there hey, some? Why are there? Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for calling, Maureen. And we'll take some more phone calls on winter ducks and winter birds at 312-923-9239. Why are there so many mallards and not more common golden eyes? Because they're really good-looking birds. I mean, not the mallards aren't bad, but they're everywhere. The, these 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 muck eaters and stuff. What? 
I think, honestly, if you spent more time looking at birds out at Navy Pier, you'd see, see a lot more, more common, com- common golden eyes. Yeah, I think it depends on where you look. Uh, you know, the, the the deep water diving ducks are out in the lake and in any deep inland lakes. But, um, you know, the mallards are what we call dabbling ducks. So uh, they'll be in any kind of a marshy puddle. So they like much more shallow water. So you're just seeing them in different places. But, you know, if you got in a boat and went across Lake Michigan, you'd see a lot of... Uh, a lot of common golden eyes, buffle heads, mergansers. I see the mergansers uh, along here all the time. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and they're seriously fun to watch fishing. It is great. They go down there and they stay down there. Yep, they're yeah. diving ducks. They're they're very well adapted to diving under the water and swimming after whatever it is they're chasing. And sometimes you can see them come up with fish or crayfish that they're going to eat. Um, and then if they don't eat it before they rise up to the surface. You'll see gulls chasing after them to try to steal their fish. So there's a lot going on. And um, you can definitely observe that right here around Navy Pier. One of the most interesting things to do bird-wise at this time of year is to look at these ducks because they're doing all these crazy displays. They throw their heads back and flap their wings. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun to watch them. And I see the the gray herons when my my dog walks, the big gray herons. They're the most ostentatious thing you could possibly see. But my dog is scaring the wits out of them when we go walking along the river. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's go to Kate. You're on WBEZ. Hi. um, I have a question about herons. Um, We're often in various places, uh, you know, near water. Uh, One is Growl Mill in Hinsdale and Oakbrook out here. And then we spend some time in... um, uh, northern uh, Wisconsin uh, on the lake. And in both places, there are herons that are there for the summer, and then they disappear in the winter. And I've just never known whether they whether they go somewhere else or whether they are uh, just sort of hiding somewhere for the, for the winter. Judy? So, um, so the herons, like the great blue heron... Um, is a kind of a short distance migrant. It won't, won't go very far. It'll go to the southern states. Um, although there, it's quite a widespread bird. I saw those when I was down in, in Guatemala as well. And a few of them will stick around. They need open water to fish. And so as things freeze over, um, they leave and go further south looking for open water. But, uh, you know, you are there are some spots where there's like a... There are a lot of uh, different waterways that have, like, warm outflows from sewage lagoons. That's where I'm seeing them. Yep, right. And so those tend to be, like, the great birding spots in the wintertime. And so herons will scope those out, and they'll stick around all winter. So will uh, the the belted kingfisher. That's another one like that, which uh, you have a lot more of them in summer as there's more open water. But a few will stick around in the winter. Now, we're we're seeing this. You see this also with uh, eagles and predator birds, right? I mean, they're they're all looking for open water, and they'll stick around as long as it's there. Yep, for sure. Yeah, and eagle eagle populations are increasing. That's a real great winter bird um, because we have, even though we do have a few eagles that breed around the Chicago area, northern Illinois in the summer, uh, we get a lot more of them in winter. And they like to hang out wherever there's open water. And that's why when a lot of the waterways freeze, they hang around around dams because the dams keep the water open and concentrate the fish. So that's why a place like Starved Rock is such a great place to see eagles in the winter is because the dam there is always open. All right, Kate, we've got a bird sound for you. See if you can identify a bird sound. And this is, um, this is one that might be singing right now. It might be the only bird singing right now. Here, here we go.
pretty solid call there. What do you think, Kate? Do you know that right yeah, off the... I, I don't have the slightest idea. I'm pretty terrible with that. So it's a bird that will visit your feeder and eat sunflower seeds from your feeder. And it has another call that sounds like its name. Does that help? No. Chickadee. <laughs> yes, Jerome is imitating the call. Chickadee. How's that? Yeah, that's a black-capped chickadee. Look for it at your feeder. It's on the ground. It, 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 tell me something about the black-capped chickadee. Yeah, so, you know, mo- birds have usually many different vocalizations, but they have one that's a song that they use to attract a mate, and then they have different calls. So, like, with the black-capped chickadee, that chickadee-dee-dee, that's a, a kind of a warning call. They'll often do it when you show up on the scene to announce your presence to the other birds. And um, But that... The one we just heard, which people say often say is cheeseburger, um, that call is it's actually a um, to attract a mate. You know, it's a song, uh, and birds usually only so sing in the spring. But the chickadee really kind of starts early and kind of goes on and off all year. It's one of the few birds we have around here that does it. So it's one of the few bird songs you can actually hear in the in the dead of winter. And if you have chickadees, uh, if you have bird feeders up, you'll often get chickadees coming to eat the sunflower seeds. And what they do, it's very char- characteristic, is they'll come in and they'll grab one seed and then they'll fly off and eat it and then come back. So they don't sit on the feeder for, for very long, I guess, because they feel vulnerable uh, in that setting. But they're very hardy birds. They're here all year round. Um, Are they active. mating all year long? Is that why they're singing all this time? No, they Are really... They're the most highly they're, sexualized they're, birds possible. <laughs> the song that they use to attract mates, uh, they probably do a lot more during spring and summer when they're, when they're forming their territories and forming their pair bonds. Um, but they are here and vocal all year. We're taking your calls about winter birds at 312-923-9239. And Beth, you are on WBEZ. Hi. What's your question, Beth? you know, know some winter birds? I do. I do. Um, I used to be a birder back in the day and live in places where we had bird feeders. But now that I live in the city, I would love you know, to have a bird feeder and attract chickadees, but I worry that it would also attract rats. So I'm wondering how how can you organize and, you know, run a bird feeder in the city without, you know, attracting the unwanted things? <laughs> One thing you could try is you could try um, feeding just thistle. So I don't think that that thistle is going to do um, really attract a whole lot of pests. It's a tiny little seed, and you won't get the full range of birds, but you will get goldfinches and housefinches and juncos. Um, so there are still a fair number of birds that you can can get with the thistle. You know, it's I think it's when you get into things like sunflower seeds and peanuts and corn and safflower seeds that you're going to attract uh, the rodents more. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. To yeah, do. and, and uh, one advantage of thistle, which is often sold under the name Niger N Y G E R, is um, that squirrels don't like it. Hooray! Oh, so okay. you'll get some interesting birds and and hopefully no unwanted creatures. But you can also there are many different kinds of feeders that are designed to like deter squirrels, and so you can experiment with uh, some of those. They have some that'll only let birds of a certain weight in, and. Uh, yeah, so it's, I think it's worth experimenting. All right, we've got a bird call for you, Beth. Hang on and listen to this call. Mm-hmm. 
What do you think it is? It, and you, you've heard, if you don't know, you've heard this name very recently. Huh. Um, okay, gosh, all I really heard was it sounded like a bunch of wind and maybe tapping like a woodpecker. I couldn't really hear it very well. Ah, it wasn't. Yeah, so it, it would be one of the birds that would go to your feeder here in the middle of winter. And it, and it, and it uh, just came out of Judy's mouth when she was saying stuff. Oh, a goldfinch? It was, it's a junko. Oh, a junko. Dark eye junko. Oh, I know that sound. I just couldn't hear it on my phone. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> and junko is a a classic bird of bird feeders in winter. Um, they tend not to sit on the feeders, but they sit under the feeders, eating the seed that's fallen. Um, they're sparrow, so they are uh, uh, roughly the same size as like a house sparrow, but gray with a lot of white in their tail. A uh, very familiar winter bird. I'm here with Josh Engel, founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding, and Judy Pollock, birds conservation consultant. And we're talking about winter birds and taking a few phone calls at 312 923 9239. We will be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're talking about winter birds today with Judy Pollack, bird conservation consultant, and Josh Engel, founder of Red Hill Birding. And we're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. And Rafat, you're on WBEZ. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. What a time. I'm making a left turn on a street. Let me just make myself comfortable. I was driving. Oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, it's a, such an interesting topic. Um, I, I see beautiful birds. I live in Lyle, uh, Illinois, and I see beautiful robins and um, such amazing birds. But I, I'm going to talk about my own experience uh, growing up in Hyderabad, India, um, the IT town, as we call. Beautiful birds. Um, so there are... Um, birds like mina and bulbul and lots of sparrows. So um, when the sparrows would come to our house, uh, they would even make nests um, on the windows. We had high ceilings. So we had these amazing experience growing up uh, with birds, and uh, I think it's a very fascinating topic. <laughs> but I'm here on the Mad doc- doctor's visit, so I just parked my car. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm enjoying listening to these birds, because um, especially the bulbul. So once when I was home, I was very young, the bird came in the house and sat. They are just such a friendly bird. They came and the miner came and sat on my shoulder. And it just was so comfortable. So uh, growing up in a, in a tropical country um, with, uh, with many cities called City of Lakes, Hyderabad are many beautiful lakes and reservoirs. So uh, we had these amazing birds. All right. We're going to give you a bird call and see if you can identify it before you go into the doctor's office, Rafat. Here is a very American bird. Robin? Pretty close. You're right in the ballpark. Okay. <laughs> it's There's kind of a color involved with the name. Oh. It's not silver. Um, blue, uh, blue, uh, red Robin? Uh, oh, blue, blue bird? It likes to eat thistle. Come to your oh. feeder. It, 
It's a goldfinch. It's an American goldfinch. Oh, I know. It's a beautiful. That's a a pretty good call. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful afternoon. (laughs) You too. Thanks a lot for joining us, Rafat. Um, Let's skip over to Nick. Nick, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Good afternoon. Um, This bird is not necessarily a winter bird, but it's a very interesting bird. It's a nighthawk. I live in Evanston. It leaves during the winter, and it comes back in the summertime. And it was very hard to identify it. And the only way I was able to was early in the summer season. It comes out around 6 o'clock, and then I was able to identify it. And and it tweets. It, it chirps all night long, and it does this really weird sonic boom noise. I don't know if you've ever experienced it or seen it, but it goes way up in the air, and does a nosedive. Wow. When it does this nosedive, it makes a sonic boom uh, sound. Well, anybody would if they were doing a, a dive like that. <laughs> you just right, go with right. boom. Now, I've never seen this bird anywhere else. I live in Evanston. It leaves. It comes back. My question is, is it the same bird? And also, why does it do this nosedive? All right, Judy and Josh are looking at each other. Nighthawks? Uh, hard to say if it's the same bird, but nighthawks are just a, a wonderful bird of summer. I grew up in Evanston and have real fond memories of growing up and hearing them calling overhead in summer. Um, they nest on flat rooftops in when they're in urban areas like uh, where we are. They nest on flat rooftops, and they, um, they're aerial insectivores, so they're flying around all night eating insects that are flying around, which is oh. the main reason why they have to migrate and get out of here in winter, because there's no aerial insects in the winter. And this is and true of many birds that migrate. No many birds food. that migrate. It's all, about, all about resources what and is food. Yeah. And um, the caller asked about the, the sonic boom noise, and that's a, that's a mating display. So they fly up into the air, they dive down. Uh, we call it a winnowing. And uh, I think they make that noise actually with the air rushing through their wings rather than with their vocal right. cords. And um, right. yeah, that's a real, that's a, a, a great uh, thing to look out for in early summer is the breeding displays of common nighthawks. All right, we've, yeah, got, a, we've got a bird call for you here. This is kind of, um, kind of a tough bird. <laughs> Man, that call just says get out of town, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, it, I'm referring it to an annoying sound, and I'd have to go with the blue jay. You are correct. All right. <laughs> they are All tough, right. tough birds. Those blue jays. Yeah, they're uh, they they make a, a very annoying, uh, very distinct sound. Well, thanks for calling. I wanted to ask a quick question about one of the interesting winter birds that comes in and goes pretty quickly here. It is not one of our birds, but it comes down and migrates. Snowy owls, Josh. And people really get excited about seeing snowy owls in winter. I saw a video of one at O'Hare Airport the other day on, on one of the Facebook things I'm on, and it was amazing. Uh, snowy owls are really cool birds. We, uh, we only get them in winter. They're, they're extremely hardy birds, and most of them actually stay even farther north than Chicago in the winter. But um, some years we're lucky enough that they, they make it far enough south. That's a big white owl uh, that tends to live on the ground or on low perches, and they like big open areas. Um, so we so see them on the lakefront. So the lakefront or O'Hare Airport are places where they are often seen in the winter or 
um, farmlands that have enough uh, rodent populations in the winter to keep them sustained. And um, some years we get a lot of them. It's called an eruption. Um, that happens every four or five years, last roughly. Last year was pretty good. Um, right? Last year was pretty good. This year is not as not as good. But there's a few around, like uh, the one you saw the video of at O'Hare, um, and uh, uh, people can actually see them. Most owls are hiding deep in the forest or in bushes during the day where you can't see them. But because snowy owls like this really open habitat, um, if you know where to look for them, you can get lucky and actually see them out during the day. All right, let's sneak another phone call in. Peggy, you're on WBEZ. We're talking about winter birds. What's up? I'm talking about great horned owls. We've been hearing a pair. Incredible. Every evening and through the night sometimes. And I'm wondering exactly which behaviors are they going through right now so that we're hearing this call so many days in a row, over and over and over. It's wonderful. Are they are they talking to each other as they're hunting? Is it something about breeding? Yeah, interestingly, great horned owls is one of the very first birds to breed. So right now is when they are uh, looking for mates and uh, getting their nest set up, and then they will they will be uh, breeding, sitting on eggs through February. You know, you can find these sort of dramatic pictures of them, sort of covered with snow and uh, sitting on the nest. Um, another interesting thing about great horned owls is that they will use. Um, uh, the the hawk nests. So uh, often they'll use a hawk nest, and then uh, the hawk will will be able to take it over a little bit later. They they make big stick nests up in trees, and they're they're you know probably more common than you think. Um, there we have quite a few of them around here. All right, we've got a bird sound for you, and um, you might you might be able to get this one. like a robin. It's, it's almost as common as a robin. It features a lot of red in one of the species, one of the genres. Uh, oh. Is that a cardinal on one of its songs? Yes, that is a cardinal. <laughs> yes, the, the cardinal is one of the first birds to start singing. So end of January, you'll, uh, you'll hear the cardinal start to sing. And for me, that's the first day of spring. They, they look so good sure. in the snow. Those okay. pictures of them in the snow are outstanding. Um, well, let, I'm a bird freak, and you've made my whole day. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's sneak Thanks. in another phone call. Kathleen, you're on WBEZ. Thank you, Jerome. I love your show. I learned so much. And like you and your panelists, your callers and listeners, I love the world of birds, the amazing experiences I've had with them. In my home outside of the city, and in the mornings when I walk downtown, though, I have watched them crash into my glass window at my home, and I've watched them right in front of me, a beautiful northern flicker, crash into a window downtown. What can I do at home to keep those birds safe, and is anyone doing anything in the city to keep the birds we love safe? Judy. So there are... um a number of groups that have actually gotten together right now, the Chicago Audubon Society, Chicago Ornithological Society, and the Chicago Bird Collision Monitors are all working together to try to pass an ordinance in order to require that buildings uh, build with uh, bird-safe glass and bird-safe design. And um, that same group has got a website up that you can go to and you can get advice on that website about how you can solve your own personal problems 
um, you know, personal problems with your windows, but also can you, um, you can follow our ordinance and we'll let you know when it's in city council so you can contact your alderman and that's um, birdfriendlychicago.org. And you can also go to Chicago Bird Collision Monitors. They've got lots of suggestions about things and ways you can do your windows. Yep. Um, so that's – yeah, I thought Chicago was a pioneer and had this down. We had a lights out campaign two decades ago. We were we were on the cutting edge of this. How come we don't have an ordinance? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, you know uh, – I don't. It's it's a little harder to get the ordinance passed, but we are encouraging Chicago to be to get back on the cutting edge because we'd be the first big, really big city. San Francisco's about the other biggest city that has one in Toronto, but we want Chicago to you know really lead the big cities into this. All right, we want to tell people about a couple more events that are happening around town that have to do with birds. And uh, we were talking about Guatemala before, and there are practices that people can observe when uh, they're growing coffee and Guatemala and lots of other places grow coffee. Um, and you've got an event with someone who knows a lot about this coming. Yeah. When I was in Guatemala, I was at a um, a shade-grown coffee plantation and saw lots of our migrants down there. So we've got some someone coming, Amanda Rodewald, who works on this in Colombia, shade-grown coffee. She'll be at the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum on January 31st. And she's got a great presentation with lots of bird bird pictures. And you can learn about how you can your coffee can support birds. So shade-grown coffee helps birds. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you uh, have this, these multi-layers of vegetation, the birds will use it as opposed to just a monoculture of these coffee bushes, which the birds don't really use. I also want to put in a plug for the Wild Things Conference that's coming up at the end of February. It's where all the naturalists, birders, and otherwise get together, and it's happening at the, in Rosemont this year at the Donald Stevens uh, Festival place there. It's the place to be. Uh, we're expecting over 2,000 uh, people this year. Nature, lo- Every nature organization in the region will be there. Uh, it's Saturday, February 24th. 24th. Yes. And Red, Red Hill Birding will have a table there so you can come and visit me in person and ask me, ask me your bird questions. Excellent. And Josh Engel is the founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding. Judy Pollack is a bird conservation and consultant. And you can find out more about Wild Things, the conference at, uh, what is it, wildthings.org, something like that? Wildthingscommunity.org. Wildthingscommunity.org. So thanks for calling us. We got a lot of different calls uh, for birders and winter birders, and we'll talk to you again soon on the birding front. Uh, Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be talking about biodiversity in Yemen. So join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.